0: I invite you all now to open your Bibles in the book of Job, chapter 19. Job, chapter 19, we'll read verses 21 to 27, probably one of the most famous passages of this book. And we pray that God would teach us anew from a very known passage. Job 19:21 to 27 Listen with faith this is the word of God Have mercy on me have mercy on me o you my friends for the hand of God has touched me Why do you like God pursue me Why are you not satisfied with my flesh Oh that my words were written, oh that they were inscribed in a book, oh that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer li- lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. How far would you go to prove you're right? I mean, we all know all too well how sweet and I told you so tastes. That blissful feeling when against all odds and complaints, you can tell everyone you were right and they were all wrong. You say something. Everything goes according to what you said it would. And then everyone avoids eye contact. You take a deep breath. I told you. So how far would you go to prove you're right for a well-said, I told you so? Would you go as far as William H. Hahn, Jr.? If you do not know who William Han is, Hahn, it is not that hard to find him. A one-hour trip from here will take you to Princeton Cemetery. There, at that famous cemetery, you will walk between the gravestones of President Grover Cleveland, Vice President Aaron Burr, Jr., mathematician Kurt Ghetto, and theologians such as Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, and Benjamin Warfield. Then, among them, you will find someone who probably went the most straightforward, yet the greatest length, I believe, to say I told you so. When you find William Hahn's gravestone, you will read William H. Hahn Jr., 1905, 1980, I told you I was sick. You might not want this exact quote on your gravestone, but you know this feeling, don't you? I'm sure you all have gone through this, and maybe even in more serious situations. You were convinced it was a pyramid scheme, but they did not listen to you and wasted all their money. You said to them, "Don't trust that guy, but they did." And now he's in office. You told everyone, "It wasn't me, but they did not believe. And maybe true of frustration, you know you're right, but the vindication actually never comes. People still fall for the same easy money schemes people still believe you are indeed, indeed guilty. Your sweet I told you so moment never came and might never come. Our text today talks about this. It talks about vindication, about being proven you are right. When we look at this speech from Job, a man who was suffering the greatest pains someone can go through this life, only to be accused of having done something to deserve it, we will see exactly the same frustration. Here is someone innocent, but no one believes in him. And you maybe, maybe, be more like Job than you realize. Like Job, you carry around the weight of shame and reproach for something you might never have done. And what does our text tell us about that? that such is life, that maybe you did indeed do something to deserve a terrible condition that you are right now. You just have to look deeper. Thank God, no. Thank God, literally. This text talks about our hope of our cosmic vindication, of our longing to be made right even when all we do is wrong. Our text today talks about how Jesus Christ is the final and ultimate redeemer and vindicator of his people. Again, our text today talks about how Jesus Christ is the final and ultimate redeemer and vindicator of his people. The first thing we need to see from our text today is that no matter where we are coming from, we are all looking for a way to be right we are all looking for a way to be right. We see that in verses 21 and 24. In these verses, just to give you some context, Job is concluding his fifth answer to his so-called... I cannot emphasize enough the scare quotes, friends. In chapter 18, the last one accused him of being on a highway to hell full speed ahead. Then, in chapter 19, we see how Job agrees, yes, that he's been treated as if God sees him as his enemy. And tonight, we see the conclusion of that speech. So, in verses 21 and 22, Job confronts his friends with the same old plea he has been repeating, and that you are all way too familiar. Why can't his friends, why can't they show him some mercy after all, as he insisted so many times already, his dreadful situation. It is not a result of something terrible that he did. It's almost in these verses as if he's saying, Why can you show why can't you show me some mercy? This is not my fault. God brought this upon me. You can be mad at God. He did it. Not me. You shouldn't be mad. However, he knows bad, better at this point. They are pursuing him, he says, as if he was their enemy too. And not even his flesh, not even his dead body would satisfy them. They want to see him pay for whatever they are sure he did. And as cruel as it sounds to see Job in this light, I'm afraid that's how we we usually see our own lives, how we think about our lives. We like to believe we do not believe in karma, the idea that the universe gives back to us what we give back to the universe, this law of perfect retribution. However, as soon as the first bad thing happens to us, our immediate thought often is, why God? Why me, God? We may take some pride in making fun of the so-called prosperity gospel. We say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and then we laugh. We make snarky comments about living your best life now. And we do it because we know better. We do not believe we will have an easy life because we're believers nor that God will recompense us with wealth and health those who worship him, those who tithe regularly. We know better than that. And then life happens. Cancer, identity theft, death, stolen luggage, miscarriage, or maybe just a flat tire when you're already late. And when when it happens to someone else, it's all about God works in mysterious ways. He's definitely trying to teach you something. When it happens to people you don't care about, you might even think, "Yes, well, I told you so." But when it happens to us, it's all. But I've been so good. I've done so much for this church. I tithed regularly, more than 10%. Are you saying then that whatever happens to us in this life is because we deserve it? In her cleverly titled book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Used to Believe, Kate Bowler describes this feeling in a way that I keep thinking about it even after having read that for a couple of years now. Bowler, to give you some context, was a 35-year-old professor when she found out that he, she had stage 4 cancer right after publishing a book that, yes, investigated the history of the prosperity gospel movement in the U.S. Here's what she found out about herself in that process. I would love to report that what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away but what I discovered was both both familiar and painfully sweet the promise that I could curate my own life minimize my losses and stand on my successes and no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at their outrageous certainties I've craved them just the same I had my own prosperity gospel a flowering, flowering weed grown in without the rest she says you see you Kate Bowler and I are more like Job's friends than we would like to admit like them we want to be right because if we are Then bad people do deserve what they get, but not us. We don't because we think we're too good to deserve chaos and suffering in our lives. We find comfort in the belief that God will never let us suffer because we're not that bad, are we? So when someone is suffering, sometimes we run in our minds and our hearts to investigate. What must have they done? deserve it. Because if you find an answer to that, you can think to yourself, I told them so. However, there is another side to this picture that we find in this text. There is a chance you might not be like this at all. You might be a bit more like Job and a bit less like his friend's You know you're a sinner. You have no trouble admitting that. You know better than to have this prosperity gospel view of your life. You're just trying to do what is right. You believe God loves you and sent Jesus to die for your sins. And you take pleasure in simply serving him by serving his people at church every week. You pay your taxes, you pray with your children. For your children but then nevertheless tragedy in life still happens you're miserable your marriage unravels a loved one gets sick your spouse is laid off what now is this all there is does God even care does anyone care Sometimes, and unfortunately, more often than not, it does look like no one cares. I know it because I felt it like this more times than I would like to admit. And when that kind of stuff happens, all you want is someone who will listen. Someone who can tell it, it will end, and it it will end. All well. All you need is to feel like you've are seen and heard. Who will look at your side of the story? Who will cry with you when you cry, and who will rejoice when you rejoice alone? This is the feeling behind Job's cries in verses twenty-three and twenty-four. If only I could write down my words, he says, on a book. Well, no, books won't do it because they're too flimsy. I need more. I need my words etched in stone. I need something that will outlive me. I need a perfect. I need a permanent record of my deeds so I won't be remembered as another sinner punished by God. Maybe right now no one is on my side. Perhaps if I leave a legacy behind, if I leave my testimony someone will remember me someday down the road. Like his friends, Job just wants to be reassured that he's in the right path and that this is not all in vain. Perhaps, by any random chance, you are here today because you have been just ordained as a pastor. As a pastor, you are supposed to earn your living mainly by preaching and applying the word of God. And then you are ordained and you're struck with a very basic fear. Will it be enough? Will my words be enough? How can I know that what I do from the pulpit will matter? Is it worth it? Will anyone listen? Can I have any kind of assurance that my words will matter? This leads us to the last thing that we need to see from our text. The second and last thing that we see is that our only hope of being right is if we are made right with God through Jesus. Again, our only hope of being right is if we are made right with God. Through Jesus. This is what, we, what the last three verses of our text today are all about. Job knows that merely writing an autobiography will not make it. However, he knows, he's confident and sure that his Redeemer will come to his rescue. What Job is talking about here, we read the word Redeemer and we start thinking about a lot of things that we know about the Bible. But he's talking about a very specific thing in verse 25 when he talks about a redeemer. He's talking about the ancient Israelite concept of the kinsman-redeemer. In the Old Testament, the kinsman-redeemer figure was someone usually within one's family responsible for guaranteeing the security and the rights of his fellow kinsmen, as one commentator explains. Someone who guarantees the security and the rights of his fellow kinsmen. The Bible's most famous example of such a redeemer, of course, is Boaz, who married Ruth to protect her and Naomi from losing their rights because both of their husbands had died. He is called that redeemer a couple of times in that book. This is the kind of person that Job is expecting. He uses judicial forensic language when he says that his redeemer will rise upon the earth and once again we think redeemer we we think rise and we start thinking about all the things we know about the bible but the 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 words that he used here has this sense of a judgment and he knows that a kinsman redeemer when all is said and done will rise up in court behind before the judge and make his appeal for him as another commentator said, Job does not want the last words about him to be those that his friends will latch into his gravestone. Here lies Job, who was a sinner with a secret sin. He refused to confess. He has paid the penalty for his sins at last, and the justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. That's not how he, what he wants, and that's what he expects a kinsman redeemer, would figure it out for him. This is why Job wanted his his words to be on permanent record, so that one day, maybe even after his death, someone could take up his case and defend his innocence. Then, and only then, he will be able to see God face to face and not be treated as a stranger. And the thought of that of seeing God face to face. It's so wonderful for Job that as he thinks about it, verse 27, his insides just melt from thinking about that. The question we have to face then when we read this text is who can tell our story before God? Who will rise to take up our case who can stand before the God of heaven and earth who we trust is sovereign and good even when bad things happen yes and will remember your name when you're long gone and your words have been lost what hope can I have that the words I'm speaking right now will make any difference in your lives tomorrow in 10 years or long after I'm dead Thinking about these questions, I remember a song from the Broadway show, that Broadway show, that I know some of you here have watched more times than the competent authorities would have considered healthy. I'm talking about the Broadway show Hamilton. At the end of the story, Alexander Hamilton dies in his 40s, is still Young, scrappy, and hungry, as he describes himself. Having accomplished so much, but having spent his whole life questioning whether he would leave a worthy legacy behind him. And the last song that they sing after his death is called Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. In this song, we hear about how Eliza Hamilton, his widow, lived another 50 years after his death all of them dedicated to keep his legacy as a great politician a great soldier and a great statesman and as the song and the song's point is that as they sing when you're gone who remembers your name who keeps your flame you have no control who lives who dies and who tells your story? This is the question that the text poses today to us. When all is said and done, when we're gone from this world, when we have no control over how we will be remembered and how our stories will be told, yes, you can still leave behind a snarky gravestone, quote, like and Hunt. Still, you will have no control over whether someone will remember you as someone who was right when everyone was wrong, or just an old, grumpy, and resentful curmudgeon. Job himself might not have fully understood everything he was saying when he gave this speech, which... Ironically, think about it, we are reading in a book thousands of years later. Yet, the book of Hebrews tells us that some people in the Old Testament all died in faith, not having received received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Job might not have understood all of God's promises or his situation, and he might not even have had an answer for all his troubles. Yet Job believed in the little that he had received from afar. Job knew that there was someone who could stand before God and remember his name even after he died. And then for us, having more than just the book of Job in our hands, we know that this Redeemer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He who lived a perfect life, but received the worst death possible, completely dissipating any notion of karma or prosperity gospel in this life, in this world. He was God's beloved son, yet it was his flesh. Torn apart, like we read in Job. Torn apart for us. Who finally satisfied not Job's friend's wrath, but God's wrath. Destined for sinners. He could be our vindicator before God because he was our kinsman. Made like us in every respect, but without sin. Yet he can boldly rise and stand before God the Father, offering a perfect sacrifice because he was also God. Having paid for our sins, he went up to heaven in his flesh and bones and stood before God face to face. There, the book of Hebrews says, he forever pleads our case, always making intercession for those who trust in him for their righteousness. Job's hope with this image of a vindicator in mind was the same hope that Stephen had. Another righteous man who received a horrible death even though he was innocent. When men were getting ready to stone him to death in Acts chapter 5, what did Stephen see? Stephen saw his Redeemer Standing up like an advocate, pleading at the right hand of the supreme judge of the universe in his favor. Stephen saw his Redeemer interceding for those who suffered and died, not because of unconfessed hidden sin, but because they are willing to suffer for the gospel's sake. Dying to themselves a million tiny deaths every day in their lives. Until they finally rest in the grave. This was Job's hope and faith. Job hoped to see him who intercedes before God in favor of faithful servants who, right now, are living in torn homes, dysfunctional families, who are battling cancer, ill health, who will die and probably will not be remembered in two or even three generations but who trust in Jesus to remember their names when they face the last judgment. This is the only faith, this is the the only hope and faith I can hold fast to as long as I'm behind this pulpit. My words will only make a difference in your lives if they are God's words. My job week in and week out is to preach Jesus, our Redeemer, to you so you can see him for who he is, not a stranger, but your Redeemer. If I ever fail to do that, making reference to a story that has been referenced from this pulpit before, you can drag me outside and give me a proper beating. Because to see Christ is the, is the only reason we come here week in and week out. Whether or not our lives are going how we think we deserve. To see him, to hear him, and to hear of his complete work in our favor. His life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the presence of the Father. To forever plead our case before him. It is not in vain, Christian. Come to Jesus, your Redeemer. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he already carried the price of your sins on the cross. Come to him, all you weary and heavy laden, and put put your trust in him. He can make you right before God. Not because you were right in the first place, but because he died for all your wrongs. Come. Tonight, you only hear of him. One day, those who trust us, trust him, will see him face to face in bodies that do not hurt and with eyes that will not have any reason to cry again. And to think of that makes my heart melt. Come. Let us pray. O great God of all comfort, help us to turn away from our sin and cling to the cross. May we hide in the wounds, wounds of Jesus and find shelter in His side cause us to place all our hopes in the powerful blood of our Savior and His perfect righteousness in our place. When life is painful and challenging and our souls give, give way to fear and temptation, root us safely once again on our firm foundation, our only hope in life and death. Let us know afresh the joy of our salvation. Christ has been faithful for us so you will always be faithful to us. For you cannot abandon the Son of God to whom we are inseparably joined forever. In this hope and in his name we pray and together we say, amen.